I am Hattie West, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show of policy analysis and international affairs. In this episode, I sit with Professor Nur al-Qadri to explore the politics of the Arab world, discuss the issues of the Middle East, and touch on Canada's role towards the region in a shifting global order. Professor Nur al-Qadri is the president of the Canadian Arab Federation since 2017. He is a professor of strategic management and innovation at the Telfer School of Management and of artificial intelligence and computer security at the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Ottawa. Professor Qadri has a long career in the private sector in telecom and information technology and has managed many government online projects. He also lectures internationally on the subject of economics and digital diplomacy, as well as leadership. He is a member of the Experts on Call at the University of Ottawa and is a regular commentator on TV, radio and print media on matters pertaining to politics, governments, business and technology. He is a sought after expert on the Middle East, the Arab world, and emerging democracies having successfully concluded many international tours with the National Democratic Institute of Washington. He is also a former director of national outreach for the Liberal Party of Canada. Welcome to the show, Professor Kadri. Uh, thank you, Hadi. I'm very happy to uh, be sharing my notes with you. Likewise, Professor. Um, this is just a brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, iAffairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, or Carleton University. Great to have you with us, Professor Kadri. Let me kick uh, this conversation off by asking you our first question. Um, in your opinion, as the president of the Canadian Arab Federation and having been in Canada for a long time uh, and being involved in politics, when did Canada's role in the Middle East peak in terms of importance and what developments shaped that role? Uh, well, Canada has uh, been always a big player on uh, the international arena. We've always uh, punched above our weight uh, as, uh, as a country. Uh, in different occasions, uh, you know, we are uh, the founders of the Blue Brits and uh, the peace missions with the United Nations. And uh, Canada had a role in the, the peace missions in many places uh, in, uh, in the Arab world. Uh, they uh, played a big role in uh, uh, the Suez Canal um, challenges when uh, um, the three countries, France, Britain and uh, Israel, attacked uh, Egypt. Uh, Canada was a, a big broker, broker of peace in 1996. Uh, Canada's role has peaked uh, also in on another occasion uh, during the war on Iraq. Uh, Canada, a member of NATO uh, under the leadership of Jean Chrétien, uh, they were uh, adamant in saying no to uh, the illegal war that has uh, been waged against, uh, against Iraq. And um, this uh, has uh, elevated uh, our, our presence, our recognition in uh, in the Arab world in general as uh, a country that uh, um, stands against uh, hegemony and stands against 
uh, illegal wars in uh, in the world. Okay, Professor Kadri, how do you evaluate though Canada's current Middle East engagement strategy under the Trudeau government? And I'm asking in terms of defense, climate change, development, etc. And and how has this approach, in your opinion, differed from past governments since the turn of the century? Well, it's uh, very unfortunate that um, Mr. Trudeau, uh, as Prime Minister, who took the helm in 2015, uh, he spoke about transparency and he made um, mandate letters of his ministers public. And the first uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs was uh, Mr. Stephen Dion. Uh, his mandate letter uh, had 14 points, uh, none of them pertaining to the Middle East. And uh, what that told us is that uh, with respect to the Middle East, he is not going to change anything and his policies are going to be a copycat of those of the previous government uh, uh, under Mr. Harper. Uh, while a lot of people were thinking that uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, is going to um, change uh, his politics, uh, in his leadership and in uh, before the elections, he was talking about uh, uh, for instance, uh, situations like uh, opening talks uh, and embassies with, uh, with Iran, something that he backed that uh, on, um, talking about uh, playing a uh, another major um, role on the international arena, um, and uh, it was mainly talk because um, in, in the Paris. Uh, conference in 2015, I mean, just like a week after uh, his uh, inauguration of his first government, um, they said Canada is back. And uh, again, on, on climate, uh, we didn't see this uh, leadership that uh, is expected uh, from uh, from Mr. Trudeau. So either in the Middle East, uh, he changed his, his position on a majority. He had a majority government. He's got a, a full mandate. Uh, we have seen slight changes uh, in 2019 when uh, he lost his majority and uh, it was uh, through pressure from other uh, political parties who have the balance of power, mainly the New Democratic Party and, um, and the Bloc Québécois. And that's when we have seen a change, um, for instance, uh, like voting in the UN uh, in support of the uh, uh, um, Palestinian self-determination, uh, very slight changes. Um, if we would want to see uh, like a, a liberal government that is taking bold uh, positions like that of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the father uh, of the current uh, prime minister, uh, or uh, Mr. John Chrétien, um, both of them, they have held very strong positions on uh, on the Middle East. And uh, they were very progressive in their, in their positions. And if Mr. Trudeau wants to shine and uh, have a policy in the Middle East that is um, like commensurate with Canada's uh, historical role uh, in, in, in the Middle East, in the Arab world in, uh, in general, and in, on the international arena, uh, if we want to go back into, into the game, um, we, he needs to read um, his father and uh, Jean Chrétien. Those were two liberal examples uh, who led uh, majority governments and were highly respected on the world arena and in the Middle East.
Since, since you already touched about parties, we know that the Canadian political system is composed of different federal parties that hold different ideologies, principles and agendas. In your opinion, is there one federal party in particular that has placed a heavier emphasis on Canada's role in the Middle East and the Arab world? Um, well, most political parties um, are shaped by their leadership. So you see the Liberal Party, for instance, and under Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Jean Chrétien, it was left of center. And uh, under Paul Martin, it was, was right of center. And then we've seen, for instance, conservative political parties like under uh, Brian Maroney, who were like central political parties that were progressive. And they were right-wing uh, um, parties uh, under uh, people like, uh, like Stephen Harper. Um, so those are the two parties that have uh, worked in, uh, that, that have um, took uh, the helm uh, of the country and the, the government. Uh, the other political parties, uh, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, uh, in most of the situations, they uh, hold the balance of power. Um, the NDP uh, was identified always as a party that has, uh, uh, that is the conscious of, uh, of parliament. And uh, as such, uh, we we can we can think of uh, the NDP as uh, as a party that has the favored positions in, uh, in the Middle East. It was the only political party, for instance, in their uh, in their uh, convention that they were able to uh, run a resolution and vote on it by 80 percent in Palestine. Um, we're still far from seeing something like that uh, in uh, with the NDP uh, or uh, with, sorry, with the Conservatives or the Liberals. I see. And I'll jump in a little bit to talk about um, human rights. Um, what are your thoughts on Canada's foreign policy and its shortcomings when it comes to alignment with international law and the support for human rights? Well, human rights uh, for the Canadian political system in general uh, is is like a buffet, and they pick and choose from it. Uh, in many situations, for instance, uh, uh, they stood up for human rights, uh, whether it is uh, support for the Uyghurs in, in China, um, they, they stood up for Iran, they stood up for Russia, they stood up for many places around the world. Yet you see them, for instance, they shy away from uh, standing up for um, the Yemenis that are being attacked uh, um, by the Saudis. They they also um, were not taking positions, and not only they shied away, they uh, they had like stark support for Israel, where um, the violations of Palestinian human rights are happening on uh, on a daily basis. Uh, we see that uh, within the Prime Minister's office, there are shields on human rights pertaining to uh, the Palestinians, for instance, uh, as opposed uh, when they go full speed uh, and they support human rights in other places in the world. I mean, a follow-up question. I know when, when we talk about development, for example, in the context of also uh, human rights. Some will say any conversation uh, about development 
uh, in terms like of the Canadian government offering development to other nations without talking about the feminist international assistance policy, FIA, uh, would be incomplete. How can the Trudeau government, in your opinion, the Trudeau government's uh, feminist international assistance policy be adequately utilized to address the insecurities faced by women in the Middle East and the Arab world? Well, um, we've got um, two things here. Like Canada um, has about $5 billion per year uh, in terms of international development uh, funds that they give. And a big part of that goes for refugees. But uh, the numbers um, are, uh, again, they're not systematic when it comes to the number of refugees that are coming from, uh, um, in for, for, from places in the Middle East mainly. For instance, uh, we don't see assistance uh, um, to Syria and Syrian refugees, uh, Palestine and Palestinian refugees, Iraq and Iranian refugees at levels uh, equivalent to that of the crisis. For instance, we see the largest number of refugees that came from the Middle East were from Palestine and recently from Iraq and, uh, and, and Syria. Yet you see that the, the contribution of the Canadian government in that realm is uh, very, very little um, compared to the to the percentages. For instance, the number of uh, or the amount of money that they give to uh, to refugees, um, we uh, they they give a percentage. Uh, if you want to look at them per capita for for the refugees, for instance. Uh, those of Syria and Palestine and, and Iraq, um, they get uh, much less, well, for instance, in comparison to what we have seen uh, in uh, in other areas around recent instance in, uh, in Ukraine. On uh, the other end of the pendulum, you touched on a very important topic, which is uh, women. Uh, women and children, they tend to be uh, suffering the most uh, in situations of, um, of war. And uh, we've seen it, for instance, in uh, uh, in Palestine, we've seen it in Iraq, we've seen it in Syria, we've seen it in Yemen, we've seen it in many places uh, in uh, in the Middle East. Again, um, the Canadian government, uh, uh, they tie their development funds uh, to politics. And and that's a, uh, that's a big challenge. Uh, in fact, uh, when we had our bid uh, to the United Nations uh, Security Council uh, that we lost to Norway and, uh, uh, and Ireland. Uh, in one of the uh, speeches, Mr. Trudeau was telling the African nations uh, that um, Canada is back to support. The answer was from the Prime Minister of Norway is that we never left. So, uh, and so Canada with different political parties uh, we've seen them taking off uh, uh, funds uh, to support women or refugees or or, or initiatives uh, of uh, that are needed on the international arena, and they tie them to uh, to politics. And even when somebody like Mr. Trudeau says we are we are back, they don't walk the talk, and um, they uh, we pay a price for this on the international arena in terms of respect. And, uh, and, and in terms of it feels like you read my mind because literally my next question was about the united nations and and 
I basically wanted to ask you, do you think that Canada's failed bid for a rotating United Nations Security Council seat in 2020 can be mostly attributed to Trudeau's uh, track record in the Middle East? Or was it, in your opinion, another set of issues that derailed it? Well, um, when Mr. Harper uh, had their bid uh, in uh, the United Nations, we, uh, we lost badly. And uh, in one of the, the close meetings with Mr. Hamilton, he, former uh, Prime Minister, uh, he told me that um, we, uh, the President of uh, Portugal, told him, uh, I couldn't believe that uh, we lo- we won a bit against Canada uh, in the UN. I mean, he told him he would never have dreamt of that if I were Prime Minister. And uh, he was true because his policies were uh, extremely uh, very important. He were he was uh, like um, an honest honest broker everywhere. Uh, there there needed a peace initiative. Uh, John Chrétien was was there, and not only John Chrétien, even for even former government. Governments of Prime Maroney and Ivan Baker very earlier to do for a good 60 years. Every time we had bid the Security Council, we won it. We lost it under Stephen Harper. Mr. Trudeau uh, criticized Mr. Stephen Harper uh, that um, we should not have lost uh, that bid. And uh, he uh, um, had a plan over a five year period. So he declared that in 2021, we want to join the um, Security Council, and um, he was uh, lobbying a lot of governments through funds, through support, uh, through all kinds of initiatives, and, uh, and uh, he was get, getting uh, a lot of rejections. Um, for instance, when he um, went to Ethiopia and he wanted to uh, meet with uh, the African Union at, at their summit, um, uh, leader of the African Union back then, the, uh, the president of South Africa, he left before Mr. Trudeau came, hoping that not to meet him and not to give a false impression that he would endorse Canada uh, uh, into uh, would endorse Canada. Uh, another um, initiative that he failed to ignore completely is um, the. Um, OIC or the uh, Islamic countries uh, that are 57. Um, he got initiatives uh, that uh, were thought that uh, were saying uh, that the Islamic countries are going to vote against him uh, if he was not going to uh, support uh, initiatives um, pertaining to Palestine, uh, and he changes his voting. Uh, in uh, at, at the UN, he did not he did not do that, and um, so he was putting his head in the sand, expecting that because he is Mr. Trudeau and he's a liberal that people are going to vote for him at the United Nations. The result was as like two countries, Ireland and Norway, uh, both of them uh, they have like less than 10 million people. Ireland and Norway is less than 10 million people. Um, we are a country the second largest in terms of uh, uh, our, our area geography, 38 million people. Uh, we are a G7 uh, nation and we lose our bid on the first ballot 
to uh, Ireland and Norway. Mr. Harper, at least, he lost on the second ballot. Uh, he had a chance to go to the second ballot. Mr. Trudeau, he was knocked off on the first ballot. Uh, in, uh, and I hope that he has learned a lesson uh, in, the, in this, but uh, it doesn't look like, uh, like that. Uh, for him, that was a strategic target. That Canada wants to play a big role in, uh, in, in the world. Having a seat at the Security Council is uh, is a privilege, and you will be able to um, put uh, your weight completely there. He was denied that uh, access because of uh, policies that were uh, fake, and he did not walk the talk on his promises, neither on climate change, nor nor on support in Africa. Uh, nor in, in, in voting for uh, Palestinian human rights at the, the UN. And he got those rejections from many African nations. He got those rejections from many Islamic uh, nations and, and Arab nations. We'll jump into to explore more now the topic of the Middle East peace process and, and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, it seems as though a group of countries' foreign policy position regarding Palestine is shifting to a single-state solution. So we've been hearing this on on the news, and it's been a recent uh, a recent topic of discussion. In your opinion, is this a feasible solution, seeing as this is an an, an ethnic conflict, or do you think that a, a two-state solution is still an option? Well, uh, I don't think the two-state solution is an option anymore because, uh, although I'll, that's, I mean, that's the declaration of um, the UN of uh, many Western and Western governments that they still support the two-state solution. When you want to support two-state solution, you need to recognize two states. Okay? And in the case of Canada, we were one of the very few nations that failed to recognize Palestine as a world for its observant status. Uh, at uh, at the UN, and um, that was uh, um, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and back then, Foreign Minister uh, John Baird was lobbying other countries, like even bribing them and talking to them about funds or cutting funds or giving them support if they vote one way or uh, or another. Um, he was uh, the busiest Foreign Minister uh, in the lead up to, um, to that vote. Uh, we hope that Mr. Trudeau that was going to change that, and unfortunately, um, he uh, like I mean, his agenda was hijacked uh, by many members of the Israel lobby in such a way that he uh, uh, did not change his positions on um, Palestine or the recognition of Palestine. For instance, um, the embassy of Palestine. Yeah, we we don't have an embassy; we have a delegation, uh, not even a mission. Uh, he was not asked uh, uh, to recognize them as a free embassy, but just to do like many other countries in the free world. Most of the European Union, Sweden or France or Germany, uh, they have missions. Right? They've got recognitions. Uh, Palestinian diplomats here are not recognized as diplomats. Uh, and uh, because we don't uh, recognize uh, Palestine. And I, and I want to refer uh, you to, to one thing that... Uh, uh, the, 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 the night of the vote uh, uh, on Palestine, I met Mr. Paul Heimbecker and he told me he's a former um, uh, advisor, Prime Minister, former ambassador to the, to the UN. And he asked me, I, I would like your opinion 
about uh, Canada's vote on Palestine. I, I, I was looking at them and I said, well, uh, Canada has voted with Maura, Maulau, Paulau, Marshall Islands, Micronesia. Uh, we became Micro-Canada. And uh, when the majority of the free world voted in support of recognition of an observer status in the state of Palestine, uh, Canada was one of uh, seven countries that didn't do uh, so, including the U.S. and uh, Israel, and few smaller states, uh, Paula, Moroccan, Asian. The total population is less than, less than a million people. Uh, for Canada to have such a stark position uh, with Israel and, uh, and the United States, they lost their moral compass uh, that they have uh, enjoyed. Uh, on the world arena as uh, peace builders, as honest brokers uh, for centuries, uh, for I mean, many decades, uh, most of the last century, um, with Mr. Harper and with Mr. Trudeau uh, following in the same way. Um, in your opinion, though, how can Canada improve its role, uh, engagement, and commitment in the Middle East peace process, and particularly with the Palestinians? Well, uh, Canada has uh, many roles that uh, it, it can play. Uh, first, uh, their support to UNRWA uh, is very minimal uh, in comparison to uh, how the problem or in, uh, uh, the size of the problem is huge. The number of people who live in refugee camps, they, they need support uh, for schools, for health, food, for all these things. Um, Canada used to give them about $300 million. We uh, used to give about $300 million to uh, uh, Palestinian uh, authority. Uh, again, uh, those monies uh, were cut uh, when Hamas took power. And then we saw some reinstitutions of those monies, uh, but directed towards specific projects, mainly security and justice and we say just so control palestinians as opposed to build their uh, institutions uh, in uh, in general uh, support on the financial level is highly so i believe uh, if, if canada ups their support in terms of um, helping the honor more uh, and if they want to give a number that is commensurate uh, with the size of in terms of refugees and the budget that we have for international development, Canada should be giving $300 million to uh, the UNRWA. Uh, they had $50 million and then they had a special million. Now, the whole contribution is just on $90 million after lots of pressure. And that pressure that came mostly from opposition parties that had uh, the balance of power specifically the uh, the NDP. So that's uh, one, one thing. The other thing is um, in situations, for instance, when there are violations of human rights of the Palestinian people, uh, we don't see um, Canada, for instance, taking very strong positions uh, on, uh, on on these issues. We've seen, for instance, uh, the assassination of uh, journalist Shirin Abaki lately. 
Uh, even the Americans condemned that. Um, we didn't see the Prime Minister condemning that. He was silent for a period of time. Uh, even there was pressure from a lot of SFBs um, that were changing. Um, we tend to uh, take uh, some, the reports that we get from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Um, like biblically, uh, if they are trying to criticize Iran or Syria or Russia or China, yet when they criticize Israel and they call Israel an apartheid state, uh, Canada rejects that uh, notion and they, they go back to the Buffett policy of pick and choose um, with uh, with respect to their positions. Uh, so they need to up their funding for UNRWA, they need to up their funding for the Palestinian Authority for building institutions uh, like schools, hospitals, roads, uh, these types of things as opposed to security and, uh, and, and justice uh, only. And um, they need to listen to uh, the diaspora of Palestinians and Arab Canadians uh, who advocate uh, because um, they tend to be hijacked by the Israel lobby as opposed to uh, listening to uh, all uh, both sides and um, coming again as uh, as honest as an honest peace builder and peace broker. If uh, there would be a country that can take on this role, it would be Canada. Uh, under Stephen Harper, we lost that. And uh, under Mr. Trudeau, we did not gain it again. Professor Kadri, we're going to jump in to talk more about uh, the economic situation in the Middle East and trade. Um, many states within the Arab world are economically growing and strong. but. What holds back the region from creating a free trade agreement? What do you think the reason is behind that? And what are the, the strengths and weaknesses of a hypothetical free trade agreement within the, the Middle East? Well, you're talking about free trade agreements with Canada? Yes. Well, uh, Canada, like over the last um, two decades, they, we've signed about uh, 40 free trade agreements. They cover about uh, um, 70 countries, like if you look at CETA, uh, the European Union, that covers about 26 countries, comes uh, with the United States and Mexico, uh, Trans Pacific uh, State Trade uh, Agreement covers about 11 countries. So, in total of about 70 countries, um, we tend uh, again to politicize a lot of uh, the situations when it comes to uh, trade. Well, Canada has a free trade agreement with Jordan. Okay? And um, why would we didn't have, for instance, other Arab countries is that um, Jordan, uh, Jordan's trade agreement was tied to the peace process with, uh, with Israel. And it looks like there are gatekeepers here that those who um, have good relationships with Israel, they tend to uh, be good in the books of, uh, of Mr. Kuru and Mr. Um, before him. And, and this is unfortunate because when nations want to build trade agreements, they should build those trade agreements on, uh, specifically uh, on the interests of the people of the nation. Uh, within the Arab world, uh, there are about uh, 400 million people. Um, there are uh, other populous nations in, in the Arab world, like Algeria, for instance, where, where it engages in a lot of business with Canada and specifically Quebec. 
uh, big Algerian population, um, sizable uh, Algerian Canadian population of about 100,000 people, uh, yet they wouldn't uh, do a trade agreement uh, with them because uh, they um, are not the ones who uh, are advocating uh, for peace deals with, uh, with Israel. Uh, the same thing for, for Lebanon, for instance. Uh, like, uh, they wouldn't have even Air Canada fly directly into Lebanon, even after uh, having uh, a flight that uh, was uh, being told that it's going to start uh, on June 3rd, 2006. Uh, um, suddenly, the government decided, no, this is not happening. Uh, Transport Canada cancelled the first trip and uh, they cite um, a lot of uh, um, nonsense uh, aspects of the presence of law and, and security reasons. And when uh, the Middle East uh, airlines, for instance, travels almost to uh, every European uh, nation, maybe they go to Paris, goes to London, um, goes to Frankfurt, and it goes to uh, many European cities and, and, and uh, Many European airlines go directly to Lebanon. Uh, Canada took that position and it was completely tied to uh, Israel lobby uh, policies in Canada. Uh, when the Canadian government is not in charge of its policies in the best interests of Canadians, uh, there is a big problem there. Um, Air Canada, back then they said a line from Montreal to Beirut would be a uh, direct line that is very profitable uh, given the size of the Lebanese population of uh, about half a million people uh, in uh, in Canada. Um, uh, those uh, that are close from Ottawa to Montreal and Montreal directly, uh, yet um, they didn't take into account what Canada said, they didn't take into account what the guarantees that they got from, from the Lebanese government. Um, the decision was solely made nonsense uh, based on lobby efforts, specifically in Israel. Do you think it's possible for Arab states uh, to leverage their involvement in the regional intergovernmental organizations, such as the League of Arab States or the African Union, in order to create stronger unity and economic prosperity? And, and if so, how do you think this could happen? Well, um, the economic fundamentals of the Arab world are strong in general. They're weak in some places in the Middle East, uh, but um, we've got a lot of rich nations there, uh, whether it is in, in North Africa, uh, we've seen in Algeria, in Libya, whether it is in the Middle East itself, uh, Iraq, and, uh, Syria, and um, Arabia, they all like the big reserves of oil and gas and large populations. Means that there are big markets there for Canadian products. If Canada wants to go there, um, it's unfortunate that the uh, Arab League is a fractured uh, organization, and within the African Union, the uh, Arab states don't function about their weight. It's, they mainly take uh, second level positions within those countries. We see uh, South Africa, Nigeria, uh, Ethiopia, and a lot of other uh, countries uh, even Africa taking um, better leadership uh, positions. Um, I can tell you one thing um, that we have we have seen within the African Union is many African states 
uh, are having good relationship with Israel now because um, again it's the Israel lobby that is promising access to uh, the US and when you see countries uh, that they are getting uh, access to the US through Israel they're establishing ties with Israel those are countries that have been always uh, on the side of the Palestinian cause uh, for a long period of time but uh, with the economic pressures uh, they are looking at uh, how can we get support from the United States uh, on, on different fronts, specifically economically and uh, the access to uh, the Israeli Prime Minister was uh, was happening. They, they were blunt about it that uh, you want to get the support from the United States it has to go through uh, Israel, a peace deal with Israel. We've seen it with Chad, we've seen it with uh, UK, we've seen it with South Sudan, we're seeing it with, with a lot of uh, countries. Now, within the Arab world, um, we had uh, lots of di- lots of divisions um, uh, during the wars. Uh, uh, those divisions were div- uh, were created uh, a divide and conquer approach. In some situations, it was sectarian, like in Lebanon and Iraq and Syria, and some other situations, it was uh, based on political ideology, like in Palestine, Fatah versus Hamas. Now, we've seen um, uh, in the Gulf region, it's a protection of thrones. Uh, Qatar, for instance, versus versus the, the UAE, on uh, who wants to have better relationships with the United States and keep that uh, situation uh, The Russian war in Ukraine has changed a lot of that because there is a new order in the world that is saying that the Americans are no longer uh, running the world in a way that is uniform. We're seeing uh, Russia playing a role and China bringing a more economic and silent role uh, on that front. And we have seen some countries in the Arab world taking positions in support of China and Russia uh, and uh, and that we never saw before uh, and there are signals for the United States that uh, there could be changes in the Arab world, specifically um, in, in the Gulf region. Your, your answer actually leads us to the next set of questions. And, and the first one I wanted to ask right now is we've seen the Middle East and the Arab world go through shifts and power dynamics during different phases and periods of time and, and under um, various internal players like Turkey, Iran, Israel, uh, Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, or Qatar, as well as external influencers like the international community composed of the US and, and, and the, the European Union, Russia, China. Um, how do you see these actors play a role in shaping the Middle East in today's context? Well, one one major uh, pillar of the changes that are happening these days is economic. And in the dire economic situations in many places around the world, um, we will see China playing a much bigger role um, in uh, the supply of a lot of products and and services that are needed uh, in uh, the Arab world. The second thing is with uh, what's happening now uh, in Russia and in Ukraine. 
there is a huge dependence, for instance, with the food supply and fertilizers releases coming from both Russia and, uh, and Ukraine. And the U.S. cannot um, make a cover for that, or they cannot uh, kind of uh, give an alternative uh, in uh, in the near uh, future. So as such, there are going to be uh, dependencies uh, on the eastern region uh, when we see um, uh, China, India, Russia, Pakistan playing more roles uh, in the Middle East as opposed to uh, the U.S. And, uh, and the European Union. The European Union is a big challenge now, just like Canada. Uh, unemployment is, uh, is, is, is low, yet we see inflation at 30 years high. Uh, we, uh, we're seeing uh, um, like crises in many European nations, in Canada and the U.S., in uh, in the housing market, uh, we've seen it in uh, in oil prices. We've seen it. Uh, so those are going to be challenges that we uh, push governments to more focus more domestically, uh, and um, that will render their influence uh, smaller and, uh, and smaller. Uh, and some other countries will fill the gaps, specifically China and Russia. With the Western world fixated nowadays on the Russia-Ukraine situation, it feels like tensions along the River Nile have escalated, reigniting fears of conflict over water. How can international institutions or third, par third parties play a role in, in bringing Egypt, uh, Ethiopia and Sudan back to the negotiation table in your opinion? Um, King Hussein of Jordan, when he signed the peace deal with the Israelis, he said that if war is going to erupt again, it's going to be more about it. And uh, we've seen those challenges, for instance, between Turkey and Iraq and Syria uh, because of dams that are being built on the Euphrates uh, in, in Turkey. And uh, again, the Renaissance Dam in, in Ethiopia uh, has been always a uh, challenge. Uh, it violates the international uh, agreements and that's why, for instance, uh, Ethiopia was not able to get support either from the World Bank or from any other economy or country to support them financially to build that dam. And as such, uh, the country took a decision to build that dam in a way that is um, fully funded by the people uh, of um, of Ethiopia, and that's why it's taking uh, long. And there are some uh, discussions with the, the government of uh, Egypt, specifically the President Sisi, um, who uh, fill that dam uh, in a way that will take much longer, and that will guarantee uh, a specific uh, level of flow uh, on the Nile uh, for some good time, uh, without. Uh, preventing the Ethiopians from taking advantage uh, of the resource that goes through their land. There are stark statistics that we will, uh, when you look at them, you think, okay, well, um, this is a necessity for Ethiopia. For instance, 50% uh, of the Ethiopians they don't have electricity, and such a dam will guarantee that uh, the country will have electricity. So, from a human perspective, this is uh, very important. 
But if you can build a win-win solution between Ethiopia and, uh, and Egypt in such a way that when uh, this dam is, is built, that you fill it uh, over a much longer period of time, uh, this will guarantee the flow. And the good thing about the dam, this is a deep dam. It's close to 600 meters uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia. Unlike the, the Aswan Dam, for instance, in, uh, in Egypt, which is about 100. And that will prevent evaporation of the water. So in fact, such a dam, technically speaking, is good for Egypt because it will prevent the water from, being, from evaporating uh, and the Egyptians will have a better supply of the water uh, rather than just the, uh, that water being evaporated and then uh, going into um, Restore to the sea. Uh, so there would be technical solutions. They are easy. Uh, just that you need to uh, ask those countries to stop sticking to their guns and look at a win-win situation that exists. Um, I'll focus the lens uh, a bit more on the Middle Eastern efforts, and I'll, I'll bring back our discussion on environmental issues and. How can Middle Eastern countries prioritize environmental issues when dealing with other important national security issues? And these issues could be, you know, conflicts, terrorism, uh, sanctions, economic issues, unemployment, and now COVID recovery. How do you think they could uh, they could prioritize environmental issues? Well, um, sometimes uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and uh, because of war. Um, the challenges that we had during the wars, whether it is in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, um, we uh, we have lost a lot of access, for instance, to electricity and infrastructure. And you would be surprised that um, there's a huge leadership there because of the lack of the existence of electricity uh, on uh, trying to uh, build renewable energy solutions. So, for instance, some of the best uh, wind uh, energy is being produced in Syria uh, now. And there are like companies that are growing uh, significantly and exponentially, uh, and they are powering a lot of uh, cities uh, with um, Syrian-made complete uh, uh, wind wind turbines. Um, in Lebanon, there are uh, lots of solutions some of them that are imported from China, some others that are being built in, uh, in the country, highly dependent on uh, on solar. Uh, and uh, they are treating this, that, I mean, they're contributing to um, the stewardship that we see on environmental, from an environmental perspective, leaving a much less carbon footprint uh, because of the necessity and finding alternatives to what they have lost. Uh, in more stable areas, uh, like in Morocco, for instance, uh, we see the largest uh, solar farm in the world is present in Morocco. And in the Middle East, uh, in the Arab world in general, uh, we have more direct sunlight uh, than many other places around the world. Um, the topography also of the land because of the presence of uh, seas uh, and, and mountains that are close to each other and the wind blowing very fast, uh, we are much better positioned than any place in the, the world 
to use both solar and wind. And uh, there is a lot of focus on, uh, on those. So I think uh, there is some leadership that is happening there. Uh, some because of the necessity and some because of the um, geographic position of, uh, of those countries. And um, irrespective of the security challenges and the financial and economic uh, challenges that these countries are going through, uh, we, we are seeing good contributions in the economy on the environment side. So I'll widen the lens a little bit outside of the Middle East, uh, but with regards to the Middle East in general, how can states or international bodies effectively work on addressing climate change with countries that have no stable or central authority in power, like Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, and Palestine? Uh, well, um, I, I tend to disagree about central authorities here because uh, a lot of the uh, environmental uh, initiatives, for instance, uh, um, they are grassroots. So you don't need to have central authorities in order to Then uh, you will be surprised that in many situations, some of those countries, they play a role uh, in terms of uh, the environmental aspect. Um, I remember I've uh, met with the ambassador of Palestine to the UN together with Elizabeth May here. We were discussing COP25 and how Palestine can contribute um, towards the policies and how they can implement policies out of COP25. And like that, that was two years ago. And uh, then we had COP26 in Glasgow and, and there were environmental policies coming out of there. It's those big countries that are polluting the most, that mainly the industrialized nations, that they need to implement uh, their solutions. I don't think that there are uh, lots of pollution uh, that is happening in Syria or in Yemen or in Lebanon or in Palestine or in Bika uh, or Afghanistan because the industrialization there is not as advanced as in the Western world. And uh, we need to phase out coal. Countries like Canada, for instance, they need to have different types of policies pertaining to the tar sands. Um, like every barrel of uh, oil that we produce in the tar sands takes three barrels of water from the Madawaska River. So there are too much um, contributions uh, in talk from countries like Canada um, and many other places around the world, yet we tend to do much less uh, in terms of our efforts. Um, till now, we're just talking about whether we have carbon tax or carbon trade, or when uh, you you see countries in uh, Europe, uh, Scandinavian countries uh, uh, that have uh, like uh, um, a huge build-up in terms of their capacity and mega power uh, that is coming from source solar and wind and renewable energies and we're late um, in terms of cars like building cars internal combustion engine or ice um, cars uh, we're, we're putting targets to stop them in canada by 2035 when you see countries other countries they had much ambitious targets at 2030 and 2025 uh, in in europe so we're not uh, um, playing uh, on the same field 
like our European counterparts. Germany is much more advanced, Sweden is much more advanced. Uh, many other, other countries uh, in Europe are much more advanced than Canada in their contributions. Uh, and going back to um, countries that don't have central authorities, uh, the chaos that exists in there um, has kind of rendered those countries, unfortunately, without a huge uh, industrialization, and, and that's the number one source of, uh, of pollution. Well, with COP27 uh, taking place in Egypt, I think in Sharm el-Sheikh, let's, let's hope that uh, this will pave the road for a more robust and, and further progress in terms of uh, environmental policy within the Middle East. Well, um, I hope so, because uh, Egypt has been playing uh, major roles. Uh, in terms of a lot of economic fundamentals and uh, again uh, on uh, on the environment and uh, COP27 um, being in Egypt is uh, is a kind of a uh, big beacon of hope uh, for a lot of uh, people in that Yes, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll switch the conversation now to focus on Lebanon. Um, given the recent parliamentary election in, in Lebanon and the upcoming presidential election, how do you see the country moving forward? Uh, do you think it'll it'll be further fragility or more stability? Um, I tend always to think of Lebanon as a challenged country that politics in that country is status quo. Uh, it's going to be stagnant um, again. Uh, we don't see um, any uh, like real prospects in terms of um, economic improvements. Uh, and uh, the fundamental problem in that country is sectarianism. Uh, unless we have an elections process that is based on citizenship rather than sectarianism, so you divide the parliament into different sects, Sunnis and Shias and Orthodox and Maronites and Catholics and Druze and all the 70 different sects. Uh, you tend to send people into those sects as opposed to um, their their country. Now, we need to have a uh, good uh, elections law uh, that takes the country as one nation with a proportional uh, representation and those types of representations are going to uh, be mainly based on full citizenship uh, as opposed to uh, the divisions of uh, religions. Uh, if that doesn't happen, um, I don't see any uh, any hopes. Uh, we will see challenges in forming the government, we will see uh, challenges in the election of the president uh, and the economic situation in there. Professor Kadri, we're almost at the end of our of our discussion, and I wanted to, to wrap it up with one final question. Where do you see the future of the Canadian Arab Federation, of which you're president, the Canadian Arab Federation relationship with the Canadian government? I mean, in your opinion, how can the Canadian government work with the organization to address, for example, hate and discrimination within Canada's borders? Um, the Canadian Arab Federation uh, has always worked with Canadian governments uh, since their inception in 1967. Uh, unfortunately, it was uh, Mr. Stephen Harper and uh, uh, his Minister of Agriculture, Jason Kenney, back then, uh, that stopped the funding of the Canadian Federation. We ended up in uh, court disputes. Uh, 
the Canadian Arab Federation is uh, an umbrella organization of uh, groups in uh, in Canada, and the organization has uh, extended its hand uh, to work with uh, with the Canadian government. Uh, we didn't see much uh, um, response from the Canadian government because, uh, again, um, like uh, on the many fronts that we have seen, uh, a lot of uh, the work that has been done with the Prime Minister's office is shielded and uh, some of the policies are hijacked. The Arab Canadian Federation is going to stay adamant in defending uh, human rights, fighting against discrimination in all its forms uh, in uh, in Canada. Um, our relationship uh, should not be built on funding from, uh, from the government. Arab Canadians in general uh, are uh, becoming especially the second generation of the more educated groups uh, in, uh, in, in the community as, as a whole are becoming more participating uh, in uh, political uh, arena and eventually uh, this is going to be recognized uh, by by the Canadian government. They're going to keep ignoring that. Uh, some others are going to uh, open roads. Um, Arab Canadians, for instance, are playing a big role now uh, in the leadership uh, of the Conservative Party. Uh, we have seen them playing a big role in the party leadership. Uh, now uh, we can have two new leaderships in Ontario, both for the NDP and the Liberals after the resignation of uh, Mr. Deluca. And uh, we plan to play um, big roles and engage the community um, in, uh, in those leaderships so that they can have a vote, uh, they can participate, and hopefully uh, our representation is going to be uh, at the level commensurate with uh, our size as uh, as a community, I can tell you Swiss, that uh, over the last twenty years uh, I have been very uh, focused and working within the Arab Canadian community. Uh, what I have seen in terms of progress over the last couple of years uh, is remarkable, and uh, we are building on strong foundations that uh, we hopefully will be bearing the fruits uh, in the very near future. Professor Nur Al-Qadri, President of the Canadian Arab Federation, Professor of Strategic Management and Innovation, as well as Artificial Intelligence and Computer Security at the University of Ottawa, and expert of the Middle East and the Arab world. Thank you very much for your time and for a thought-triggering discussion. We wish you all the best and hope to have you again with us in the near future. Well, thank you, Hadi, for, uh, for that interview. And uh, I want to uh, kind of raise hats up to uh, your professionalism and you've covered um, almost everything. I've, I've never had such a thorough uh, discussion on uh, on these topics uh, covering the Middle East and Canada, trade and economics and the, and the environment. And uh, uh, I, I wish you good luck in uh, that episode and other episodes in the future. Uh, you are uh, doing a great job. Thank you, Professor. Much appreciated.